0: Hello and welcome to the Dungeon Musings podcast. My name is Kevin Madison, and I will be your friendly dungeon muser this evening. Uh, tonight, I want to talk uh, about a campaign that I have uh, going right now. I'm um, this is going to be the first in a series of episodes that are dealing specifically with some of the campaigns uh, that I'm running on the um, on my YouTube channel. Uh, so I'm calling these series uh, Campaign Corner, and the first of these I want to talk about one of the Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of uh, Hyperborea campaigns that I'm running. Uh, It's a game called, or the campaign is uh, tentatively right now called Beneath the Boneyard. And um, I'll, uh, yeah, so that's what this this episode is going to be about. Um, If, you know, campaign summaries or uh, discussion of kind of the decisions that were made into a campaign is really not uh, something that interests you, I'm going to make sure that, guess what this series will be about. So um, I'm still going to be recording all the other uh, types of uh, episodes that I record, so uh, there will still be other content for you if this is really not your bag, but if this is your bag, well, let's get to the episode. So this campaign, as I said, is, I'm calling it the uh, Beneath the Boneyard right now, and it is run with Jeff Tolanian's really, really cool uh, Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea. Uh, for those who are unfamiliar with it, and I can't imagine if you're a podcaster <laughs> of this podcast that you're not uh, unfamiliar with it, but... Uh, uh, Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea is a uh, role-playing game that is part of the OSR or the old-school Renaissance or old-school revival movement. Uh, it is a game that uh, attempts to kind of recapture some of the spirit of the uh, the original uh, AD&D and uh, D&D box set, uh, the original uh, D&D box set and the BX versions of D&D, and trying, and, um, in some cases, to extrapolate, you know... Uh, those ideas in, into um, or implement those ideas into a new uh, format into new games and um, Ash uh, or Astonishing Swords or Hyperborea, as it's sometimes called. Um, I'll I'm probably will call it uh, alter, alternatingly Ash or Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea because I, I say both. Um, but Ash is a um, kind of uh, probably best thought of as a, what would be known as a retro clone. This is something that is a, or a retro game, I should say. This is a, a game that doesn't specifically try to just, you know, recreate d from back in the day. It is its own thing. And the way that uh, Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea is its own thing is that um, it, for one thing, uh, the setting is a place called Hyperborea. And Hyperborea is um, basically takes many of the. Uh, inspirations uh, behind D&D or that that, um, that formed the the inspiration for D&D. That was listed in the Appendix N that's included in the original AD&D DM's guide. Uh, But it jettisons the Tolkien influence. So the Tolkien influence is gone, um, which means there are no elves, dwarves, halflings, anything like that. Uh, The Uh, game Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea, instead embraces the Robert E. Howard and Clark Ashton Smith and um, Lovecraftian influence as well as like Michael Moorcock and some other kind of grab bag of of influences the feel of play for it is a much more kind of to be honest it's closer to the AD&D rules uh, than it is to the um, basic or expert rules Um, and it features about twenty-two different classes. There's no multi-classing in it. Uh, there's no races beyond uh, humans in it, and it makes for a really, really terrific pulpy experience. You know, each of the classes is, is extremely thematic, um, so it, it really like the, the feel of the world of Hyperborea is really different from a typical D and uh, game. However, there's also a really strong mechanical underpinning to it as well. There's a lot of mechanical decisions that uh, or changes that uh, Jeff made to the rules, uh, including uh, tweaks to how the attribute bonuses work. There's, it's a much more synthesized... Um, Uh, or not synthesized but a much more uh, consistent kind of way that that uh, attributes provide bonuses Uh, he's extrapolated other kinds of physical tests or feats which are kind of like um, you know um, expanded versions of the old Ben bars lift gates rules Uh, and also um, spells have been given a complete rework um, and the combat mechanics have been given a complete rework Uh, in addition to uh, shortening, like in the, if you are familiar with old school games, all, uh, in uh, AD and D at least, the uh, each um, combat round lasted—I c- I can't remember how long it was—but it wasn't an unreasonably long length of time, like a minute or so. It was—it was quite, you know, for for someone who's used to, if you're um, playing more modern games where you're used to like six-second rounds, it seems like a really long time. Well, Ash changes that. It doesn't have the—you know—turns are still ten minutes, and or uh, you know, six turns make up an hour, but rounds are ten seconds long as opposed to. The one minute or whatever it was in in uh, AD&D. Um, there's also a host of different cool maneuvers that you can take advantage of, including things like wielding a weapon offhand to uh, you know get an AC bonus uh, to your uh, melee uh, attacks. Um, this my personal favorite is the arrow planting, which is uh, you stick your arrows in the ground and then you increase your rate of fire as you're firing them off at oncoming adversaries. Uh, And there's a whole host of other things in there. Uh, It incorporates, it does not uh, have the AD&D two um, weapon or two uh, types of weapon damage against, because in AD&D, and forgive me if I'm repeating stuff you already know, but in AD&D you would have uh, one type of damage against smaller, or medium sized creatures and then another one against larger or larger creatures. It doesn't do that in this, but it also incorporates something called... And it doesn't have weapon speed, which was in um, AD&D. But it has uh, something called weapon class, which models the size of it. And it does it in a really, really elegant way. And the reason I'm going on at length about the mechanics of the game is because it's... There's that's, it's those two things working together that I think makes for such a compelling game and such a really brilliant game. And the more I play it, the more I keep like realizing or recognizing other elements that I'm like, oh, that's such a good idea. Such like it's not not a uh, blindingly obvious or really you know um, uh, it's not a really uh, significant or at least at first glance does not appear to be a significant change. But uh, you realize after the fact like, oh, that's so smart. And it's little things like, um, you know, withdrawing uh, from how you, you know, withdraw from combat and, and things like that. How you sequence your combat as well. In, in Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea, every combat round is divided into two phases. Uh, and in each of those phases, you go through four segments, which are melee, missile, magic, and move. And at uh, the effect of all this stuff together, all these interesting you know, maneuvers and whatnot, is... Um, oh and one other really brilliant mechanic is something called non-standard tests and non-standard tests are basically just a roll of a D6 and then there's a certain number you set the difficulty of it and you set make your roll and if it hits a certain roll or less then you succeed and I use that in play to improvise all sorts of things like you know whether someone might know something or not or a spot check or things like that Uh, um, it's just it's just a really brilliant game it's got a great um, mechanical underpinning to it so it's not just, like, I mean, I personally love the game because it's that combination of those two things together and it's why I'm running it so much on, on my YouTube channel. But the, it's not just the, uh, the setting. The mechanics, the version of the game that he's put together is really, really good. And, I mean, I obviously, like with any kind of OSR game, I have my own house rules that I use in it too. But this is, hands down, my favorite iteration of a D&D type of game. You know, I, I love this game, and, and uh, there's other things you can that you can add into it. Like, you know, I, I my house rules I have set uh, a set attribute or not att- yeah, set, um, a set range of uh, uh, numbers that are used for attributes for when you make a character. I give max hit points. I uh, fix uh, hit points as as people go up in levels as well. Um, and then I also use something called Astonishing Fortune. And what Astonishing Fortune is, is basically like a metacurrency that allow you to do certain things. So you could spend it to, everyone starts a session with one of them and then I hand them out uh, throughout the session. Although I've been doing that less and less now because I kind of like people making the, the decision of when they, ch- they spend this thing. And um, what you can do with it is you could uh, re-roll a dice roll, you can get an automatic save on a uh, saving throw, you can ignore a, a single instance of damage uh, or you can um, um, what do you call it? So make a minor alteration uh, to the scene, and uh, it's you know that that particular feature. What that does is it sort of blunts the uh, sharper edges of a the sort of unforgiving nature of OSR games. But um, you know I've been doing that. I've been running the game with with astonishing fortune for about six months now, uh, on a regular basis, like at least once every two weeks, often uh, much more often than that and everyone has, uh, all my players have said that it's still, like, the the level and the feeling of danger and whatnot is still very much present in the game, so, uh, so the, it, you know, it provides a way to sort of, um, I don't know, to, to like I say to, to blunt those edges. Well, what I got to thinking to recently, um, is whether, you know, what else I could use Ash for. I had, uh, Recently, at the time, earlier this year, I picked up a um, bar, or I was reorganizing my shelves, I should say, and I came across some of my Dark Sun stuff, and if you're not familiar with Dark Sun, Dark Sun's kind of a swords and sorcery meets sandals and, you know, or a swords and planet kind of, you know, um, uh, setting. It's It's got uh, a very dark, you know, the setting is this blasted desert uh, planet where, you know, all the different races are sort of put through a very specific kind of gritty, you know, lens. There's psychics uh, or psionic powers that are ubiquitous in the setting. Um, it's one of my favorite, favorite settings from the AD&D 2nd edition era. And um, I just sort of thought, for, it suddenly dawned on me, I'm like, you know, I bet you I could use Ash to do this. So that got me thinking about um, how other, you know, OSR games have handled races or ancestries. And... Um, I stumbled across the way that it works in Swords and uh, Wizardry, because in Swords and Wizardry, you're unlike pretty much any other uh, version of D and D or a D and D style game. Swords and Wizardry does not modify your stats when you pick a, a race. You know, it doesn't. Your strength doesn't go up because you're a dwarf. Your you know, um, intelligence doesn't go up because you're an elf. Your stats are what they are. You know, and instead, it the only real change to the character is a um, is uh, some abilities you get. You know, elves can see in the dark, they're resistant to uh, sleep, and things like that. So th- that kind of gave me a way of approaching it. And there was another, and I can't remember the, the game that I, that I noticed this in. Um, if, I, if I can think of it afterwards, I will mention it. But there's... Um, uh, oh, you know what it was? It was uh, some of Kevin Crawford's games, the, the cindy nominate games, like uh, Stars Without Number or Godbound. And uh, what it does is there are certain modifiers that you will get uh, for, you know, race or, or species or whatever. And it doesn't, again, it doesn't modify your stat, it modifies your bonus. So your stat doesn't change, it's just that your bonus changes. And that's a really clever way of, of changing things. And the reason I think that's clever is because you don't, that means you don't need to expand the range of attributes. You know, you don't need to make it so that every dwarf or whatever has a one point higher, you know, constitution. If what you really want to do is just give them more hit points, they're they're meant to be tougher, sturdier things, then just do that instead, you know. And uh, so that was sort of the the uh, idea I had. I was like, okay, well, how could I, you know, how could I approach this stuff? And then as I got, um, uh, I was on vacation recently and I started thinking more about this stuff and I, I just sort of started working on... Uh, a version of Dark Sun, uh, that could be, uh, you know, astonishing Dark Sun, and then when I got back, I found, got back from my vacation, I found that the first week of games back, I, um, uh, I was going to be down some players, uh, so, uh, I kind of looked at, at, you know, um, feeling, I don't know, I, I guess kind of ambitious, I decided, you know what, if I can make it, um, I think that, you know, uh, going to AD&D, that's not a big step with Ash, because Ash is like a lot of, uh, Old school games where you can pick up uh, pretty much you know anything and um, any uh, old school product and you can use it as written. In one of my campaigns, I've been using the um, AD&D Wilderness Survival Guide as a as a regular part of my uh, uh, game. I made some uh, some modifications to make it fit the uh, sensibilities of the Ash mechanics, but otherwise, it's pretty much used as written. And um, I also recently filled a collection on an impulse buy of getting all the old AD&D second edition handbooks. So I was was looking at how I could use um, kits, you know, uh, which I, of course, I mean, it's it's blindly obvious when I thought of it afterwards. But that's what um, kits are, or archetypes, I should say, are in Pathfinder. Archetypes in Pathfinder are just a different version of kits. So I was like, all right, well, there's other games that have all these great ideas I could steal about how to slightly tweak different existing classes. How could I make this work in my game? And how can I make races work in the game? And then I decided that I would go nuts with it and be like, all right, I'm going to take a game that is far, as far removed from, or an adventure as far removed from the OSR game as I could. I mean, maybe the furthest I could go would be like a, a, a D&D 4th, you know, adventure, but I'm close to that, I think, by taking one of the like the most recent um, Pathfinder Adventure Path. Now, if you're not familiar with the Adventure Path, they're mo- uh, monthly publications where it's a different mo- um, adventure that forms part of a six-module arc. I've talked on the podcast before about how you know my feelings are and my conflicted feelings are with them, but what I decided to do is just take the first module, and because I, I particularly liked some of the wonky ideas in it, and it is the. Uh, uh, the uh, Tyrant's Grasp uh, adventure path that is, um, uh, the first adventure is called The Dead Roads. And it's got this really trippy kind of like extra planar, almost, you know, uh, Clark Ashton Smith kind of vibe to it. It's got some really fun uh, NPCs in the first thing. It's very, it's, it's a really non-traditional um, adventure. And just like all the other Pathfinder things, it comes with beautiful maps and so forth and and illustrations. So it's a bunch of stuff I can steal. So what I decided is, all right, I'm going to put together some rules. I'm going to have uh, four, you know, uh, archetypes uh, or, you know, kits or whatever for each of the different uh, categories of classes. Because in uh, Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea, each of the classes is designed to be, you know, one of the four... Uh, an iteration of the four existing classes, the the core classes, the fighter, uh, magician, uh, cleric, and uh, thief. So came up with four different archetypes for each of those, and what it did is it gave smite, slight modifications, benefits, uh, slight um, you know benefits, slight uh, um, penalty, and then for certain things there would be modifications. Oh, and it would also give a secondary skill. I elected not to adopt the proficiency rules from. Uh, AD&D or AD&D Second Edition, uh, because I I I mentioned on the podcast before that I felt that the the thing you get when you incorporate a skill system or a proficiency system is not necessarily you get a feeling that oh I can make my character better at X Y Z, but because you are adopting that kind of categorize you know categorization, then what it also means is there are things that people cannot do. It means that certain people are, are bad at those things because you know in order for your character to really excel at them and what I prefer to do is just run it a little more loosey-goosey and uh, you know if you've got a secondary skill which is generally a description of a certain kind of profession then I will let you enjoy certain benefits like you know uh, benefits to certain um, physical attribute uh, uh, feats or, or tests uh, or for non-standard tests that you'll get a certain you know a certain benefit uh, from them or you you know you may have an ability to make a check when people without your you know secondary skill background would not be able to so there's a secondary skill that's tied into each archetype there's a benefit there's a, um, a drawback uh, effectively and um, it's nothing huge and then each of the archetypes are not archetypes the uh, ancestries as well each of those uh, no stat modifications but each of them has certain benefits uh, but the trouble is is you know and, and the trouble that has always been with those older versions of D is well why why on earth if everyone who is a, a you know a, a cool race gets great stuff why would anyone play humans you know apart from the fact that humans get unlimited leveling yet why would that and that's i just don't think that's a really legitimate you know reason to incentivize playing one over the other you know because again you're the, the only reason that the humans are good is because you're penalizing all the other races so that just seems silly instead what I did is I gave uh, my humans an extra point of astonishing fortune to start so th- uh, they've always got an extra bit of that resource and they um, they gain 20% extra XP which is not a huge amount I mean like it, it's definitely significant it makes them feel Like, they're going to hit certain levels a little faster, but it's not like they're going to massively outpace everyone, too. Plus, the way that I make my... The way I run it, the um, unspent points of astonishing fortune get tossed into the XP pool at the end of a session. So they become 50 points uh, of XP. And and that's split amongst everyone as well. So if a human doesn't spend that extra point, then it gets split amongst all the extra XP that gets... I mean, it's a minuscule amount, but it's a a little bit that gets split amongst everybody. So... um, so that's sort of what I was I had in mind Uh, so I put together some rules uh, to to get that to going oh and there's one more thing I added as well um, and that was astonishing cantrips Um, I've mentioned on the podcast before how much I really love the idea of cantrips and how much you know I had a really positive experience with uh, uh, D&D 5th because of the cantrips and not the combat cantrips I didn't think those were I don't know, I Eileen, mean, like, those, those are, they're, they're a, a good, you know, resource to have as a character, but the overall effect of it is that everybody, you know, every caster has some kind of ranged attack, and every caster has some kind of ranged, you know, buff, and it's just, and also, like, light, it, it makes a lot of the things that I think make um, Dungeoneering and, you know, wilderness travel and stuff like that, the things that make them fun, uh, and even, like, detecting magic, like, that's, ugh. I had a recent uh, campaign experience with uh, Detect Magic as a cantrip in Pathfinder and I fucking hated it. Hated it more than I could say because it was just they constantly using it and constantly using it. So what I wanted was for cantrips to have a good, meaningful presence to allow magical characters to feel more magical and to you know, have opportunities in more scenes than just when they're unloading their very, very limited uh, spells. And I didn't want to just give them more spells because I lo- like the sort of really, really powerful magic but quite vulnerable, you know, thing that's the, the fun trade-off with playing a caster in these old-school games. But what the, the um, cantrips would do is allow the, the casters to do things that were useful utility kind of benefits uh, or utility in, in combat, so as a support role kind of thing, or to... to you know, serve as a, a limited version of some of the useful uh, support things that they've got. So, uh, support spells. So, things would be like, you know, there's a cantrip called Radiance. I also intentionally named them all uh, different things from the uh, related spells. So, I have a, a, fee, a spell called, uh, or a spell cantrip called Sense Magic. And what Sense Magic does is it, all, the only thing it does is it'll tell you if something is um, enchanted. It will not tell you what the enchantment is. It will not tell you, you know, anything beyond that. It'll just tell you if something's a magic item. And the reason I put that in is because the, you know, what we tend to do, I think, as DMs, is when we are describing loot, we all but tell people what is magical. So if you're describing a certain item, if characters are, you know, or players are canny and start looking through things and ask for descriptions of of what's in, you know, the loot that they found, you're probably gonna give a description of something that's going to all but tell them what, uh, you know, what is uh, magical and what is not. They're going to sort of know that stuff. So if we're doing that anyway, then why not have that sense magics uh, thing in there? Why not do that? Um, Alternative, I guess the the counter argument to that is that, you know, it allows the um, casters by use of detect magic, uh, that allows them to to really, you know, make good and, and beneficial use of their um, and strategic use, I guess, of some of their limited resources. Uh, but because in old-school games, and in Ash, just like uh, in other old-school games, you still have to actually cast a separate spell to identify stuff, and then, I mean, you're just sort of like giving excuses to chew through. You're, you're taking away some of the fun of finding loot. Finding loot is, is a, a super cool part of these old school games, not only because random generation of loot, uh, not only because you get XP from it, but also because you get these cool new abilities. You know That's one of the ways where uh, characters are of the same class and same race will really differ from each other is because they have different magic items. So what I decided is that uh, my, my version of Detect Magic is going to uh, allow you the spell detect magic is going to allow you to uh, not only you know see what is magical but also to identify what what it is so um, you're using up one of your very limited resources which is your first level spells boom to to do this um, but the uh, sense magic that gets around you know me having to do the the overt descriptions for things um, similarly the radiance spell, which is way worse than light, doesn't give as much light and it requires concentration. You need to spend your action kind of concentrating on that. It allows them to do some cool magical shit without breaking, you know, where, where, without breaking the use and the value of that light spell. That light spell is way better than what the radiance spell is. And that's kind of what I did. I also decided to add some, uh, each of the different classes has v- tweaked and different. Uh, cantrips that will either buff an ally or um, provide a debuff to, like, a penalty to uh, uh, to adversaries. And each of them is slightly different, so, like, the, the ones for Magician are different from the ones from the uh, Clerics, which are different from the ones for the, the uh, um, what do you call it, the Druid, which are different from the ones for the... Um, I'm forgetting which my other one is. Maybe that's all the only three listing: magician, druid, and cleric. Yeah, probably. So, uh, so anyway, so that that's what um, the changes that I made for for this and the sort of the the rules that I put together: cantrips, astonishing fortune, uh, archetypes, and ancestries. Now, this is not something I would use in every campaign. I'm certainly for my two uh, campaigns that I've got three campaigns, I guess that are set actually in. Uh, Hyperborea, I'm not using any of these rules apart from the uh, cantrips and the astonishing fortune. Those things I use in all my games because I, I like those and that does not change the feel, I don't think, of the or the sensibilities of that particular setting. However, um, in order to get a more traditional fantasy setting, like the Pathfinder setting that uh, I'm using as a loose sort of starting point for our um, uh, Dead Roads adventure or the Beneath the Boneyard campaign. Uh, that's what I'm doing is I'm I'm making use of the ancestry and whatever so that was my planning for it that's what I'd sort of come up with and then this week we had our first two sessions for it so maybe I'll end this segment here talking about the background for the campaign and I'll transition now into the first two sessions so those are the plans for the campaign how did it turn out well it turns out that it turned out pretty damn good (laughs) Um, we had uh, two players uh, show up, uh, or not show up, but like be available for the first session. And um, they played a, a uh, Heaven's Bless. Uh, so what, one of the things I, I did as well is I, I basically took the opportunity to sort of reskin some of the stuff uh, from, um, uh, from the source material from, from Pathfinder uh, to, um, to fit sort of my own sensibilities. You know, uh, like I've never really liked the name Asomar. Uh, So I I went with a Heaven's Blessed uh, for the, uh, you know, to reflect kind of divine ancestry character. So one character is playing a Heaven's Blessed peasant hero uh, paladin, and uh, the other guy is playing a savage wizard dampier, so like a half-vampire mage or magician. And the first session went, you know, uh, it was, what what I decided to do with it is, uh, the adventure starts off and forgive me this is going to contain spoilers for the dead roads so if you're planning on playing dead roads skip this section um if you're not planning on playing dead roads or you you plan on running it and you want to hear how things went from me then carry on so the dead roads starts off with the characters finding themselves basically locked in sarcophagus. They they wake up and there's earth around them and they're stuck in a sarcophagus and they gotta you know oh, struggle and get themselves out and then they have to uh, start trying to piece together where they are and whatnot. And in the campaign is written. The characters have full recollection of you know they don't know how they got there, but they still have a full recollection of you know their backstory, where they're from, and whatever else. And I decided to just wipe all that away. We're starting with a complete clean slate. And they don't remember anything. They remember their skills. Uh, They remember their spells if they've got them. Um, They remember their fighting abilities. They remember their names. But they don't remember anything else. They they would not recognize their mother if they saw her. Uh, They could not tell you who their childhood friends were. They can't tell you what their favorite food is. But what they can tell you is who they are. So that, I thought, added another layer... I mean, for there's two purposes to that. One, we could do character creation effectively on the fly as we were going along. These characters would learn more about themselves, you know. So, uh, and in particular in the second session, I got an opportunity to have that come out a little better, and um, in, in the way that, like, I rather than let the characters go through and you know pick their languages and whatnot, you know, um, I had the scene where. They were exposed to some things talking, and, I'm, and so I just turned to the characters who had bonus languages they had not selected yet, and said, "All right, do any of you speak this language? Do any of you guys understand this? You know." And uh, we just kind of went from there. And that's uh, as we people as they encountered things, I would talk about how those things, like you know, they, they encountered reliefs, uh, carvings on a wall. There's this picture, so I would talk about how that made their characters feel, and and the complex, you know, in some cases. Um, well, as in all things, I mean, I guess if they did have a connection to it, sometimes there was a bit of a, a mixed bag of, of uh, feelings that went with that. And the reason I did all that stuff is because I think that makes for a much more compelling and interesting mystery. And it focuses the character the, or the players, I think, on that setting and trying to, you know, parse together as much evidence as they can to try and figure out what the hell they you know where they are and whatever else. And in the course of doing that, I think it helps them, um, it's, it's helping them come to grips with who these characters are and, and really learn who these characters are through play um, not only because that's how you often you know I mean I, I, that happens in every uh, you know campaign to one or, to one degree or another but um, boy like it just I don't know it, it's proving to be really really cool the characters or the players seem really invested in the mystery of what the hell is going on. Um, in addition, it helps that I'm playing with a lot of people who... Uh, so, our first session was uh, two players. Second session, I had four or five. Uh, one, two, three, four. Uh, I think it was four players, maybe. Um, but in any event, it was... Uh, yeah, f- four players, I think? Five. Ugh, gosh, I'm having a hard time counting here. Let's see here. Uh, we... One, two... No, it was five players. Because we had... Uh, uh, added, we had a dampier, so half vampire, barbarian swashbuckler. We had a human, um, shaman, uh, savage priest. And we had a human. Oh, my dog's very excited here. One sec. So in the final, actually, a uh, final character was a, uh, orc blooded. And I, I expressly said, um, it's not necessarily a child of a, uh, orc and a human it's it's that the orc ancestry is so strong that it can even pronounce you know uh, or manifest you know um, generations down the line um, but anyway but they didn't know anyway like they've lost their memory anyway so the character didn't necessarily have to make that decision as to whether or not they had a you know what their ancestry was or, or their immediate um, parentage was I should say and um, and yes yeah, so it, it was a half or, or um, orc-blooded fighter uh, mercenary and, um, boy, oh boy! Like what a fun first. Everyone's playing at first level, so you know it's it's got that real. We got it. We had a bunch of really fun uh, tactical encounters. They fought these uh, things that were um, the the actual Pathfinder name is something like Ostroviter, something like that. But I just like that was ugh, one of the things that that Pathfinder I find does is it gives these like silly, not silly, but it, I mean. I, I sort of think of the legacy of the West End Games. West End Games' Star Wars gave all the different, you know, squid face and walrus face and whatnot, gave them actual, and you know, species names. And this sort of has, you know, carried over, I think, into D&D where, you know, mind flayers became illithids and, uh, and so forth and things got specific names. Pathfinder takes this to the nth degree where, you know, it will have these very, you know, scientific-sounding names for things. But the thing is, is what these things do is these critters are these creepy little magical bugs that animate, you know, fuse together with uh, uh, acid and magic these uh, skeletons and then animate them. And I was like, no, bone bug. This is a, bo- a bone bug. Bone bug is what you would call it, not not this crazy, you know, specific, you know, it would only be sages and and whatever. So, um I had these bone. They fought these bone bugs that were animating skeletons and whatnot, and that was a fun kind of tactical encounter. Because every time they took down one of these skeletons, boom! This bone bug would fall out and come skittering over. So the uh, fighters in the group are racing around trying to smash shit. The uh, mages and uh, spe- other spellcasters are trying to either you know uh, fight from range or use their cantrips to buff people up. Like it was a really fun and exciting tactical encounter. And and gosh, you know what? Like I mean. That's one of, the th- one of the things I really, really loved about 4th edition D&D. I ran an awful lot of 4th edition D&D was um, whatever other faults that uh, there may have been with that system, the tactical combat could be really, really, really fun at times. Like, extremely fun. You could make really cool, um, complex tactical decisions in that game. And, boy, like you really, it really felt you could do the same thing in this one, or at least I could see the players doing that. You know, swapping between different uh, tactics or different uh, maneuvers, I should say. Um, Coordinating with each other to keep people safe, you know, using their astonishing fortune to keep you know allies safe or things like that, and uh, it was just a really fucking awesome encounter, you know, like tense and and thrilling. And then uh, and then the guys spent some more time exploring stuff. We had this um, terrific um, fight that was in a a hallway too with these uh, fire beetles that were climbing on the ceiling, and I had recently used fire beetles in another. Game as well too in in my barrel maze game where I was using um, a modified version of Scarlet Heroes with it and this was so much more exciting you know and, and so much more because there was more meat to it there was great you know tactical encounters of the guys coordinating to you know slowly draw these things back and figuring out when they could you know jump in and make the attacks how they get past each other how they would minimize their uh, their penalties or maximize their um, you know their uh, flanking or or rear attack bonuses like. It just, it was really, really awesome. It's, it's another thing that, that really made me uh, think about the thing I love about astonishing swordsmen Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea is that by giving uh, pretty much every fighter class access to these amazing combat maneuvers, you know, you've got your, all the creative kind of um, expressions of spells that comes with old school play where, you know, people can make really neat creative uses of some of their spells. Uh tactical combat both melee combat and range combat especially melee really has a ton of great options in it you know thanks to the thanks to the maneuvers and the weapon class you know for the size of weapons and so forth and it was just boy oh boy you know uh, so much fun and the neat thing was is that I pretty much I was going to sit down and you know convert over all the um the creatures into ash I had this stupid idea that i was going to convert everything into ash and then you know post the care the things in the um ash uh, mewe group I'm like here here's for everyone to you know anyone else who wants to make use of this but it turns out I, I didn't have enough time and it turns out i didn't need it really anyway i could pretty much just you know eyeball what the damage was what the ac was and so forth for the like directly out of the the pathfinder books and it's, again, I mean, it's, it's one of the reasons why I, I love, love, love running old school games is because you can so easily make use of so much cool stuff. Um, and you can so easily find, um, you know, great, you know, surprising stuff in there. Like, I, I one of the uh, credits, you know, that uh, is, is owed to uh, Pathfinder is, you know, when they've got six bestiaries out, plus a bunch of other things that have new... Um, you know, adversaries in it. There are a ton of really great ideas out there for things you can draw on. You know, weird creatures that, that the players will be completely unfamiliar with. And it's, it's not that kind of how can I describe a goblin in a way that doesn't just say, oh, it's a goblin? You know, I don't need to worry about trying to do that sleight of hand to describe you got this small g- orange skinned humanoid with, you know, teeth gnashing and whatever. I just describe something and they're like, what the hell is that? There's what that fell out of that skeleton, you know, and, uh, because, um, Pathfinder is a more modern game as well, too. There's tons and tons and tons of, uh, great, uh, art to draw from, uh, which we can, you know, I think really helps with both great looking tokens on the, uh, board, because I run all my games on Roll20, um, and also, you know, great handouts, so you can really show the players and have that reaction of, oh my god, what is that thing, you know? And, um, boy, like, wow, what a great session, um. And then the, I mean, you know, in contrast, I, I don't want to run, um, I guess I was going to say in contrast, the day, the morning afterwards, I ran another Ash game and it was, this was back in, uh, uh, what do you call it? in um, one of my uh, Hyperborea uh, campaigns and I love that one as much too, you know, like one of the things that's, that's uh, amazing about Ash in general is uh, no damn dark vision, you know, you, you darkness is an actual thing. And I've uh, I've complained before, but why? That's one of the reasons I, I love that is because I think dark vision can ruin a lot of uh, you know a lot of the um, scary uh, elements of going underground, you know, and trying to keep that torch lit. Um, but you know, I mean, if you're playing a game where it isn't necessarily just about a dungeon crawl, then um, there's ways to you know I think there's other ways to build tension, and you don't you know you can maybe see just using darkness as a way of Simulating the fear of the unknown and the, and the uncertainty and the feeling of danger that you get with uh, exploring um, uh, dungeons and other kind of dangerous areas, you could recognize darkness as a crutch. As just, it's one of those things that I'm I'm overly relying on. I mean, like I, it doesn't. It's not going to change my use of darkness all the damn time in in Ash. I love that, but for this game, it's not. You know, the mystery and the feeling of danger and the feeling of the unknown and the feeling of wonder. To be honest, is going to be. Um, is going to be palpable in this game, and boy, oh boy, like the mechanics. I was, I, I I'm so far. I'm standing by my uh, uh, opinion that it's not only the setting that is so compelling with Ash. It's also the mechanics. The mechanics in Ash are fucking super cool, and this has uh, that session, and. Um, you know, the characters that the guys came up with, the way that they just jumped into their, you know, role-playing their characters, um, the way they were playing to their strengths and, and whatever, you know, and, and really interfacing with the with the fiction in a meaningful way, um, and the, the forced teamwork and whatnot, and how fast the combat went as well. Even though we're using Ash, where there's the regimented kind of, you know, different phases, still moves really quickly, you know. Uh, so, man, what a great session. Um, so that's where we are right now in our... Uh, Beneath the Boneyard uh, campaign. It's, um, the characters have, uh, you know, um, the first group of two characters, they got themselves out of the sarcophagus and began slowly kind of exploring this tomb. They heard screaming and and banging around back in the sarcophagus. They went back, they found more heroes, and then that whole group has slowly made its way through the tomb, fought a bunch of these horrible bone bugs and their, you know, skeletal chariots. They've learned a little bit of mystery about, uh, there's someone that they recognize who's this, you know, pe- appears to be a knight or a cavalier or a paladin, maybe of some kind. There's some other woman that's referenced in this, in some of the places. And what is described as his tomb is, is actually empty. There's not a body in there. So they're slowly making their way along. And, and the way we left things was on a cliffhanger of them hearing something I described as deep speech. Some, you know, um, squawky little. Uh, voice kind of talking like that up at the top of uh, these uh, flight of stairs and that's the next thing they've I guess the only real way they've got to go next so they're going to go up and and deal with that and that that's actually gonna be awesome too because it uses one of my favorite uh, and I, I honestly don't know if these existed in d and I don't remember them being in there but they're uh, mites and maybe they're out of uh, fiend folio actually no, I got the fiend folio right here let's see if mites are in the fiend folio well, look at that. Uh, the Mite is from the Fiendfolio. Pretty cool. So the... Um, so a little different. Uh, the uh, Mites in uh, Pathfinder are a little different from the ones from the Fiendfolio. You know, the Fiendfolio was something I did not own as a kid. So I, I'm, I'm um, not as familiar with the uh, contents as I am with the Monster Manual or Monster Manual 2. But uh, boy. anyway, the, the Mites in... Uh, so it wasn't introduced in Pathfinder. It's been part of D&D since AD&D. Uh, but there's mites up there, and I love the way mites look in Pathfinder. They're these hideous, kind of like blue-furred, kind of like a, an overly, you know, carbuncled, bald, you know, uh, kind of like cross between what we see as a goblin and what we see as a, uh, um, a gremlin from the film, you know, gremlins, and uh, they're just terrific. They're nasty little... Uh, th- uh, things that, um, have the ability to control, um, giant, uh, vermin. So, you know, you get to really make use of your giant centipedes and giant beetles and shit like that. So, so it's a, they're a pretty fun, um, low level adversary from, uh, Pathfinder. And I'm looking forward to using those in here too, because they're so, again, it's something that is, is different. And I think a lot of the players are just going to be like, what the hell are these things? You know? So that's, um, that's another thing that I, I, you know, that's fun is, Finding um, in this in this particular adventure, there's lots of different uh, creatures that are used in there that I I don't think that um, I have ever used before. And some of these are oddball creatures, like it seems that things that are far from the Fiend Folio, and some of them seem to be things that were introduced in Pathfinder. And I'm never going to run a Pathfinder game on a I, I may run one shots or two shots at some point in the future, but I'm never going to run a first edition Pathfinder campaign. However, I love the books. I love the a lot of the content that's in these uh, things. In fact, like I, I, I've mentioned on previous podcasts, I, I make use of Ultimate Wilderness in my um, alongside my Wilderness Survival Guide uh, for certain things, and I also make use of the uh, Ultimate Intrigue book for uh, certain things. I also like some of the ideas from Occult Adventures. I'm not, I haven't used any of them yet, but I plan on using some of the ideas from that. Not um, you know using as the Pathfinder rules, but I'm adapting them to fit for. My more simplified, you know, or streamlined, depending on what way you want to phrase it, uh, rules that come from Ash. But um, anyway, uh, so great couple of first sessions, really, really fun, um, and it went over better than I, I thought I could have hoped as well. Too, it, it seemed like the car- the players had a lot of fun, you know, and kind of you know really were chewing over what their their options were. I've already seen some really good optimization between certain classes. Um, w- one of the things I did with the archetypes too is that I, I very much try to steer clear of just flat like attack bonuses, melee bonuses, damage bonuses, anything like that. A lot of things dealt with role playing stuff. So it was modifications to reaction checks or, or things like that, or um, restrictions that came from reaction. So like the uh, swashbuckler, swashbuckler gets uh, there is a stat bonus that that, that gets. But um, there's also a uh, reaction bonus. They're just charming people. But the downside to that is uh, every time you go into town, um, I roll a d6, and on a roll of 1, something comes back to bite you in the ass. Some trouble comes up. You know. And I love that stuff. Like That's, that's just great. You know? I think it's going to make for a lot of fun. The, the peasant heroes, there's peasant sort of equivalent. They get massive bonuses from hirelings, for not massive, but I mean relatively big bonuses to reactions from hirelings and, and peasant people and stuff like that. But the downside is, is because you're a peasant hero, they're constantly pestering you to try and help them with shit. And every time you say no to them for their, you know, their, their small thing, uh, your reaction bonus goes down by one until it's transitions into a penalty where they're just like, that's so-and-so, so-and-so. He really thinks he's something. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think th- those things will make the role-playing elements of the um, of the campaigns really, really fun, you know. The mercenary um, <laughs> is a spendthrift. Uh, he blows, without any other benefit, uh, blows 20% of his uh, cash whenever he gets back to town, you know. It's booze and uh, whatever else, you know. Uh, so... Anyway, that's um, that's where we are right now. I mean, that, that's the way that campaign is. It's it's something that is uh, it's, it was an exercise to try and really take uh, Ash and, and really see what um, how different and how uh, a setting I could I could apply those rules to. And I love it. I love the results right now. I think that uh, it, it's it remains. It is my favorite um, expression of D and D, and it's so easy to come up with uh, house rules and to steal stuff from older versions. So, I mean, I really, it, uh, like, when I'm looking around my library, when I'm uh, planning, I just feel like I can draw from anything that is D&D related, you know? I mean, I can I can draw from old school stuff, I can draw from Pathfinder, from 5th edition. It, it's all, you know, uh, fair game for fodder, for putting together that, um, the kind of game that I want, which is a really, you know, um, dangerous feeling, old school style of play, but with some options for, you know, some, some more modern, kind of uh narrative devices and meta currencies that that allow the players to to you know mitigate the um the or make some decisions over the flow of the story in terms of you know especially for like death saves or things like that so um but anyway that's that's what um you know where we are so far i'm gonna number this episode episode one for this one and uh you know, and then as the campaign goes, I'll I'll pop back on with more uh, campaign corner updates, um, and I'll probably do uh, uh, as the weeks go on. I will add more episodes dealing with uh, other um, uh, other uh, campaigns that I'm running as well too, or things that I've got in uh, you know in uh, the the works. So that's how things are in uh, the uh, dead roads or B- uh, beneath the boneyard campaign. Now let's make it with the outro. So that's a campaign corner for uh, the uh, Beneath the Boneyard campaign. Um, as always, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns regarding this uh, episode, please don't hesitate to leave me a voice message on uh, Anchor, or you can shoot me a, a tweet on Twitter. My uh, Twitter handle is Dungeon Musings, uh, and uh, you can also reach me uh, by email. My email address is Musings at gmail.com. And uh, last but not least, I'll just do a quick reminder as well that from now until the July first, uh, two thousand nineteen, uh, we are running a charity raffle on the uh, Dungeon Musings, uh, or I mean on the Dungeon Musings YouTube channel. Um, this is a, a charity raffle that benefits the SOS Children's Villages International charity. Uh, every twenty-five dollars Canadian that is donated to the campaign uh, enters you once in a chance to win a whole bunch of. Uh, different prizes including a uh, copy of the uh, Beetle and Grimm Platinum Edition uh, Dragon Heist uh, box set that is a originally $500 US product it's now um massive it's got tons of cool stuff in it um and then there's a bunch of other things that were donated by either I picked them up or they were donated by um other companies including Beetle and Grimm itself actually donating a copy of the Sinister uh silver edition of the Ghosts of Saltmarsh campaign so uh that or box set, and that's a brand new version that hasn't even been unboxed. There's bubble wrap that's still wrapping it, as well as a bunch of other core rule books for things like the RuneQuest Lorantha game, the um, gosh, uh, Delta Green, both uh, core rule books for that, uh, the um. Uh, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay 4th Edition uh, game and the uh, Legend of the Five Reigns game from uh, Fantasy Flight. So uh, you can find all about that if you go to the Dungeon Musings YouTube channel. Uh, Any of the recent videos will have a link to the Heroes Save Villages campaign. You can enter there uh, or you can just learn a little more about SOS Children's Villages International, the charity that it benefits and um, see if it's something that you uh, feel like you might want to kick some money towards uh, to get a chance at winning some pretty cool gaming stuff. Until next time, folks, thanks so much for listening, and happy gaming.